Welcome to the Law360 Podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hey. And Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. So we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to get into a very buzzed about viral video that everybody's seen where a passenger was drugged off of a United Airlines flight. We're going to talk to our senior reporter for transportation, Linda Chim. She's going to talk us through that incident and particularly the legal follow-up and fallout that's going to happen after that. We're also going to get into a roundup of the legal industry with Abraham Musacco. And then stick around to the very end because we have a really strange one to talk about this week. A former big law partner who was finally arrested after 20 years on the lam. So we're going to get into the ins and outs of a really juicy case there. Um, But right now, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch is going to hear his first set of oral arguments on Monday. So we thought it'd be a really good time to dive into a couple of cases where he could actually be the swing vote. There's certain things that have made it their way to the high court where it was pretty clear they're 4-4 split. So we've picked a two really interesting ones to talk about today. This is based on a report by our senior business of law reporter, Aber Coe, who broke these down in a great feature that if listeners haven't seen, they should check it out on our Law360 site. Um, the first one we want to talk about is an employment case. Bill, do you want to tell us about that one? Sure. And it is a fun one. I know sometimes we don't always love labor law, but this is a one that a lot of big companies are watching and it should be exciting uh, to see what the court says. I covered labor law for a decade, labor and employment. Love it. Go ahead. Absolutely. So the question here is whether or not companies can use what are called class action waivers in their employment contracts to prevent their employees from participating in class actions against the company. You know, suing the company for for wage and hour violations for all sorts of different different things and the question is whether or not that violates net labor law whether or not that is in violation of the nlra the national labor relations act so this has some pretty big stakes because these can be big well-known companies and big suits right sure um yeah i mean the the nlrb uh, i think it was last month released a report saying that 75 pending disputes against big big companies are waiting for this ruling to come out at&t uber kmart uh united health so it's a huge issue and it's a huge issue because big companies absolutely love using these things they are they prevent you from being on the hook for hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on aggregate on the whole country on of liability for all sorts of things. It forces the employee to use an individual arbitration process rather than partaking in a class action. But the National Labor Relations Board hates this. That's so the big why button. do they hate it? Right. So the NLRB has been striking these down as a violation of the NLRA, which protects a employee's right to concerted activity. And uh, the NLRB B has been saying that these things are in violation of that, even though they, you know, employers say that this that this kind of arbitration agreement is expressly authorized by the Federal Arbitration Act, a separate law. So the question is, you know, which of these sort of which of these laws takes takes precedent? And, you know, trying to prognosticate about the court's decisions is always an imprecise science. But we know that Gorsuch was tapped for his staunch conservative or his his conservative values and we can 
probably make an educated guess as to how that's going to go. Sure. Right? There, I mean, yeah. there, there's definitely cases with Gorsuch where it's harder to make a pick, but this is probably not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, he is sort of in the mold of Scalia, and Scalia was known for upholding these sort of private, you know, it's a private contract between an employee and an employer. And the, you know, you never want to say one way or the other with the Supreme Court, but I think the good Vegas money would be on uh, Gorsuch being part of a five judge, five justice majority that uh, upholds these these provisions as as legal, as not in violation of labor law. So we're going to see a potential big win for companies and employers. And a potential big loss for labor advocates, mm-hmm. for plaintiff's attorneys, um, for really anyone who thinks that individual employees should you know, be able to use class actions to adjudicate their rights. This forces them to sort of go one against against the big guy. Right. So this really forestalls a lot of things that it may be hard for the little guy to get full redress just in little guy versus company. Sure. I mean, without without, you know, without grouping there, without sort of getting that contingency case, it's it's hard for for individuals to have the kind of money to access the court system. Okay, that's going to be one to watch for sure. And what are we talking about as our second one, Alex? Yeah, well, Judge Gorsuch is in for uh, is in for a very interesting case because he's going to find himself right sort of in the crux of a very interesting church and state battle in a case called Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. And the central issue in that case is uh, a program run by the state of Missouri that doles out grant money to schools primarily to refurbish playgrounds using recycled tires. And the state opted not to grant that money to Trinity Lutheran, uh, citing a provision in the state's constitution that that basically bans the use of the distribution of public funds to uh, religious institutions, and of course, it's teed up a pretty interesting constitutional battle. Here. Well, and the art, the, the, I thought it was fascinating to to dig into this case because obviously, it's not something that I cover every day, and, and you know, but this issue of of the the state of Missouri is arguing church, is arguing church and state. They're arguing a First Amendment establishment argument mm-hmm. here, but the argument against it, it seems, from the religious institution, is that the the protection of of that separation is infringing on their right to free exercise of religion, which is also a First Amendment concern. Yeah, the snake eats its tail on this one pretty quickly. Right. Uh, and then there's a second constitutional issue, uh, because not in, in addition to the First Amendment expression of religion, they're also arguing 14th Amendment, they're not getting equal protection under the law right. based on their religion. So what's the argument for what, you know, what happens here? Why are people, because it, like, it seems like this is the most watched case of the term and that, that everyone's really keen on what's going to happen here. Definitely. And it definitely seems weird that people we would be charged up about a program that uh, uses recycled <laughs> tires to furnish right. playgrounds. But that's not, always, that's not, always the, these, these cases, you know. That not the, that that's not important. Right. But yeah, I mean, you, and you've already seen it in the filings in the docket. The supporters of the church sort of say that if you, if you pull this plug, you are, you are threatening any kind of public support for any, any group that has even a tangential religious component, whether you're talking about school vouchers or protections uh, for religious schools and social services, like, like often battered women's shelters and soup kitchens. You have uh, to imagine there's, there's, there's millions and millions of dollars that goes to, to sort of religiously linked organizations. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. And then on the other side, of course, people are never too fond of having their tax dollars put to put you know, meant meant to support, even if they tan, even if it's only tangential, uh, you know, churches or religious organizations that maybe 
have right these might be ones that the argument is they they might discriminate based on sexual orientation or based on religion itself right right so and they that's, don't want their taxpayer money and funding you should be that. able to and how do you distinguish if, if you if you're not allowed to distinguish between these two between a, a secular and a, and a and a religious institution you know can you even look at that when you can you look at religious discrimination can you look at uh other things that maybe questionable when you're giving these public funds out yeah and all that stuff is like simmering below the surface here on like what's actually like there's like a lot of like really granular arguments about like the type of scrutiny they deserve and Mm -hmm. like they're going to get into that always with first amendment yeah yeah and so yeah it's going to be really interesting and i yeah so let's prognosticate a little that's part of what we're doing with this one (laughs) what is Gorsuch going to do and does is there anything in his background that would give us a clue he's generally viewed as being a pretty staunch supporter of religious freedom. So it seems like the the church sort of has the wind at its back, although I would I would hesitate to use the same level of certainty that we talked about with the case that you brought up, Bill, uh, in Epic, just because this can get a little fuzzy sometimes. And also, depending on who you ask, the appointment of Gorsuch didn't maybe break a 4-4 deadlock. It reinstituted a 4-4 deadlock with Justice Kennedy still as the swing right. vote in cases like this. Sure. The swing man. The swing man. Tony K. And <laughs> the... <laughs> that would be his jazz name, I guess. Right, in right. Sacks. Um, so yes, uh, I would fe- I would not be comfortable with, like going out on a limb either way, but that just sort of raises the stakes here. The other thing is that this case has sort of been in stasis for a long time. The case was granted... Well over a year ago, I think like a month before Scalia died. It was, yeah, just just before. And it's not, they've sort of been kicking the can down the road, and that always sort of raises the sort of speculation that they kind of know they have a split on their hands. Right, and, right. Uh, or that it's particularly difficult to parse out in some way. Right, sure. and so uh, all eyes on this one, definitely. Great. Yeah. Thanks for this update, guys. Absolutely. A little later in the show, we'll be talking with Linda Chim, who's our senior transportation reporter, about the legal fallout from United Airlines physically dragging a passenger off of a flight this week. But first, we're going to check in on the happenings in the legal industry with Abraham Musako to bring us the Legal Industry Minute. Thanks, Amber. The legal community received some tragic news about a pioneering jurist this week. Sheila Abdus Salam, the first Muslim woman to serve as a judge in the U.S., was found dead in the Hudson River on Wednesday afternoon. Abdus Salam became the first black woman on New York's appellate bench when she was confirmed in 2013. Her death is being investigated by police as a possible suicide, according to news reports on Thursday. In other news, pass rates on the multi-state bar exam hit a 10-year low in 2016, according to information released by the National Conference of Bar Examiners. The pass rate among the 54 jurisdictions that administered the test was 58%, dropping from 67% a decade earlier. And finally, Boyce Schiller Flexner announced last week that it would be adding the 26th lawyer California boutique Caldwell Leslie to its firm. The addition of Caldwell will nearly double Boyce Schiller's existing presence in the state, which includes 38 lawyers across Oakland, Palo Alto, Santa Monica, and Los Angeles. Caldwell counts among its clients several major media companies and the Motion Picture Association of America. This has been the Week in Legal News. (music) 
This week, our top stories about the potential legal fallout from a incident that happened with United Airlines where a passenger was forcibly dragged off of a plane and everyone saw it on social media and the world was set abuzz by the video of seeing him pulled off. To talk with us about it, we have our senior transportation reporter, Linda Chim. Hi, Linda. Hi, how are you? Hi, Linda. Hey. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about this? I think many people have seen it because it was a viral video, but what exactly happened? So it was a very weird incident involving United Airlines on a flight from Chicago to Louisville on Sunday night in which United realized they had four uh, crew members that needed to get on a full flight. And they had asked for passengers to willingly give up their seats. And they had offered money, compensation, as part of their procedures to do so. And, and at they offered first, even more, right? They at first went by, yeah. bite, it was yeah. a $400 offer. Mm-hmm. And... Everyone wanted to get home. It was Sunday night, so nobody bit. It got up to $800, and no one took them up on the offer. And then United started implementing a random selection process, at which point the the fourth passenger who was picked to disembark uh, refused to give up his seat, and that started the episode that everyone has seen in the video. Yeah, so why, why did he say that he didn't want to take the... He's a physician. Yeah. He's a physician, and he had made it very clear to crew members that he needed to get back in the morning. He had patients to see, so he really did not want to wait for the next flight, and he wanted to remain in his seat, at which point the airline crews decided we're going to have to call in Chicago Aviation Department security officers to pull this guy off the flight, but it and was that's just, kind of what we've seen, right? That's when all the other passengers pulled right. out cell phones and started videoing. And it was actually those Chicago aviation police that were pulling officers who were physically involved in removing the passenger. We um, say removing. I'm sure everybody by now that's listening has seen this video. But just in case he was they were dragging him down that center aisle. So they basically hauled him out of his seat. He protested. You can hear him screaming in the video and his he hit an armrest and that basically left his jaw all bloody and uh, yeah that's sort of the iconic image of the right. blood running down his the, face yeah the blood coming out of his mouth and his glasses are askew and he's he looks fairly dazed as he's being dragged down with his shirt just sort of he's being dragged by the arms and his uh, shirt's riding up and and he's just being hauled off the aircraft down the aisles while so obviously outrage i mean it's a very striking video um but was the airline within their rights to do this i think your story teed up really the legal arguments about what can and can't be done here by these airlines i think the takeaway uh right now based on what we know what information is out there is passengers appear to have fairly limited rights in unique situations like these where airlines can come up with reasons as to why they need to involuntarily deny you boarding. Is, print, that's their word. It's a small you know, print issue, their, right? Their, their language. Yeah. It's, it's basically all in the fine print yeah. of their contracts of carriage, which is what you agree to when you book your ticket and you say you want that flight. But it's it's not as if so and many we, folks we read probably that fine don't. Print. Yeah, of course. It's just, yeah, people just click it because they want to book the yeah. flight. But... Um, <laughs> We probably don't see this or recognize that this goes on as much as it does. I would imagine this happens from time to time, but people are more ready to agree to disembark a plane or get stopped at the gate even. Right. This was just sort of, uh, sources will tell you, it's a very odd situation to have to 
pull people off a flight who when they've already boarded they've they're seat belted in and uh they're they're patiently waiting for takeoff and and you want to yank them out right well it's a question of active and passive right you can stop you can physically then it's the it's the passenger being aggressive if they're trying to get on the plane that's you know it's different once they're already sitting down so like you say there don't appear to be a lot of rights that passengers have to fight these you know removal policies whatever we want to call them but that certainly won't stop uh, the, 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 the lack of rights won't stop people from pursuing legal action. And in fact, the passenger, Dr. David Dow, uh, held a press con- his, his attorney held a press conference this morning, recording on Thursday, Thursday mm-hmm. morning, saying a lawsuit was coming. Can you give us sort of an idea of what that might look like? From today's press conference, uh, Dr. Dow's attorneys are saying they're probably going to file suit against United Airlines and... They suggested the city of Chicago was also going to be targeted in that, and it's going to be a state court suit in Cook County. And it's the city because of those agents, uh, the the security officers uh, from the city's aviation department. And that would be like an excessive force type suit. The attorneys were saying today that Dr. Dow suffered a concussion. He had a broken nose, lost two front teeth, and is undergoing reconstructive surgery, so Right there, you've, you've, you see a package of multiple tort claims uh, in a potential suit, and you're probably going to see a lot of uh, excessive force and mistreatment um, claims leveled at the officers that, that were probably involved or the aviation department, how they handled it. With the airline, can, is, there, is there an argument to be made that, 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 he, that they somehow breached a contract to him or that they, you know, is there anything else other than sort of the, the, the violence of it that, um, that, he, can, that he can pursue? I think that's where it gets very, very tricky because that that's not necessarily strong defense, but a potential defense for the airline to say, um, based on our contract, we have discretion to decide, you oh, know, uh, who we can remove based on what circumstances. And an argument can be raised by the airline to say that he didn't follow flight crew instructions. It could be something as basic as that, just refusing to get up out of his seat. Um, but they've not always sung that tune, right? There was something that came out uh, from the International Business Times right after this incident happened that they uncovered some comments that United had made to the DOT through some rulemaking process that basically said in no uncertain terms, a ticket guarantees a seat on our planes. <laughs> and... I, you know, shocking a, 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 a corporation engaging in some some manner some manner of double speak. But I mean, what do you what do you make of that? Is this just sort of a? I think those comments were made by the airline to make sure uh, federal like, regulators don't try to to slam them with additional regulations to to, to disclose the finer points of the fees they charge. Uh, and that was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So I, I would just say that airlines have quite a bit of latitude in, in uh, the promises and guarantees that they make to passengers and consumers that agree uh, right. to these prices and tickets. And so I don't know. It's still very unclear um, how accountable the DOT can hold uh, these airlines to to not executing and following through to the letter these uh, so that immediately promises immediately begs the question. I mean, is this a situation where we're going to see new rules, where we're going to see new accountability for for airlines, either in the form of legislation or new regulations? You know, will this outrage lead to actual change in the way that these airlines operate? 
For sure. I think instantly in the past few days, you've already seen several lawmakers fire off pointed letters to the DOT secretary as well as the city of Chicago's aviation department demanding answers, uh, what their procedures are, uh, why, what were the steps taken that could have avoided or potential steps that could have been taken to avoid a situation like this. And so we may see, we probably will see hearings first off. And then um, I think the surefire way to get this or get more consumer protection regulations potentially on the books would be to insert language into a must-pass bill. This year, Congress has to reauthorize the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. So Mm. in past instances, uh, previous administrations, we've seen lawmakers insert language about tarmac delays um, and Mm -hmm. making sure you get refunds for your baggage, lost baggage. So... We've seen that done, and they've been added to the FAA bill, and that's going to have to be reauthorized by the end of September. So they have a ready-made vehicle. to They don't have to introduce some big sweeping right. airline. And I think that's the yep. expected right. uh, vehicle on which they'll try to get more regulations rammed through, but that's not to say the airlines aren't going to make a big stink. This is definitely going to be one to watch. Thanks for bringing this to us, Linda, and walking us through all the nuances of the legal arguments here. Of course. Thanks, Linda. Now with our Under the Radar segment, we're going to talk about one that's really strange. It's um, a former big law partner who was nabbed after 20 years on the lam. What happened there, Alex? Friends, sidle up to the table and let me regale you. (laughs) This is a good one. This is a particularly good one. Of the strange life of former Hunt and Williams LLP partner Scott Wallace. Mr. Wallace went on the lam 20 years ago when he was implicated in an illegal exporting scheme. He was sort of, it was, it's not really clear. He was, he was, it's like shirking some, shirking people for money on Mm -hmm. some like, like fake booze exports Mm -hmm. or something. Anyway, he went on the lam and given the, the sort of like weird nature of his crime, he probably could have just like laid low and evaded justice forever. Let me guess. He didn't lay low and evade justice forever. No, the man the man loves action and he just <laughs> wanted to keep sort of he, he he basically kept grifting people for two decades. Sharks got to swim. He he would just kind of grift money using sort of various various aliases and assuming different identities. Some people like assuming the identities of people that he knew. Anyway, he was just recently busted on uh, sort of luring people into this million and a half dollar real estate investment scheme and uh I mean, I can only imagine the types of uh, um, sort so they, of yeah. so they so they he had, they had been looking for him for twenty years under the original name, right? And now that to be now, honest, I don't yeah. really know how like aggressively they were pursuing him. Like, right, I, I he was lightly wanted. I was I, <laughs> well when I was first putting this together, I was like, oh, nabbed after twenty year manhunt. That's a little right. grand. I mean, he's not Osama bin Laden. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, he was just this guy who's nickel and diming people. Well, like, we don't know. We don't know that he's not Osama bin Laden. <laughs> one I mean, one restaurant well, bill at a time. Well, it could have been one of his aliases because my favorite part of the story is that he used quite a lengthy roster of names while he was out on the lam. Yeah, right? and I mean, look, I've never had to use an alias, and I just don't know. I don't know what I would pick. Yeah. 
But this guy really had some humdingers. I mean, if I'm starting from the least interesting, he went by again. Again, his real name is Scott Wallace. The most, the, the least interesting one he used is a, a man named Drew Prescott, and that's fine. But let me just rattle off some more: Frank Amolsch, Alan <laughs> Hankst, Eugene Grathwool, Cameron Sturge. I mean, is sounds, John Smith too good for this it guy? It sounds like what? a 1940s baseball lineup. I haven't <laughs> like, done. I haven't done. And sidling into the boxes, Cameron Sturge, a noted securities fraudster. But wait a second, though. I haven't even done <laughs> the, the best, best one. The best one. Endicott Asquith. <laughs> Endicott. That's amazing. I did not know this was a name. This is crazy stuff. It was a so robber like a, baron name. I was going to say or a British like a, a British prime minister in 1880. <laughs> yes, yeah. that'll work too. Yeah. Uh, so Endicott did finally get caught though. I believe that was that was the his last known identity uh-huh. and that's what he was it involved in and, and caught so it makes sense. I mean it's perfect. Yeah, and the other weird thing uh, he would basically his like his investment scam isn't even really that interesting. It's basically just the typical like um making false claims to mm-hmm. people who want to invest in stuff mm-hmm. and then using their money like he said he spent like fifty thousand dollars at restaurants i don't know just, sure because you know when you're on the lamb you know you got to eat it's a whole it's a whole thing right so, endicott only goes to nice places guys yeah, he doesn't he, go to low-end restaurants there's no mcdonald's for endicott he right. also had like a lot of online dalliances with, with 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 women on various like online dating sites and it it, it doesn't appear to have done it. I mean, you're just leaving more of a trail, Mr. Wallace, Mr. Yeah, Asquith, plus if that when, is your real name. When you start with like this story <laughs> and then you tell me that he had various online dalliances and there was no other sort of terrible parts to that, then yeah. I think he did well for himself. I expected that he was buying like black market bald eagles or like, or, or. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, frankly, it's a little, it's a little lame that he was just like your run of the mill crook after all this time. But, you know, I mean, when you have a name like Endicott Asquith, you can't really like live up to that. But anyway, uh, you know he's he's uh, he's going to go away for a while now. I suspect he's been charged in Boston federal court with uh, aggravated identity theft and wire fraud, uh, along with uh, his uh, various real estate uh, grifting and uh, you know stuff like that. So he's got uh, he's got a long road ahead of him. Yikes! So I wish him the best. I guess uh, again. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Again, a former Hunt and Williams LLP partner disbarred 20 years ago. They are thrilled to be having him back in the headlines. Now in federal custody. So, Thanks for that one. It's um, We'll all think about a better alias in case we need it. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That'll conclude our Law 360 podcast today. I want to thank my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Thank you. Alex Lawson. Thanks. I want to also thank Linda Chim, who joined us for the main segment today, and Abraham Musako, who brought us the Legal Industry Roundup, and also the producers, Steve Trader and Kelly Mercano. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>